This morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 53 to chapter 14, verse 12. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a dish the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me say good morning again. And if you've not met, my name is Richard, one of the ministers here, and it's a pleasure to uh, see you or to have you with us at home. And uh, we're going to consider those, uh, the reading we just had from Matthew's Gospel together. Should we pray together as we do so? Uh, Father, as we heard uh, earlier in this service, as we uh, prayed with that song, would you open the eyes of our hearts, Lord? We want to see you. Our Lord Jesus, as we come before your word, expecting you to speak to us, we want to see you. We don't want our sin or our ideas or our uh, preconceptions to get in the way of who you really are. We want to see you as you are. And so please, would you speak by your spirit, open the eyes of our heart, show us yourself, and lead us to respond to you well and rightly. Amen. Well, over the next few weeks, uh, Matthew will take us on safari. Uh, it's fine, we don't need a plane ticket, uh, we'll stay here, but uh, in the last few weeks, in Matthew 13, we've been seeing the parables and talking about different responses that Jesus expects they'll be to him, responses to the king. And it's sort of the, the theory paper that you get in Matthew 13, Jesus telling them ahead of time what they'll expect, telling the disciples what they'll see. And then as we come sort of to the end of the chapter, really into chapter 14, it's uh, gone safari. And we go out in the wild and see these responses uh, in flesh, worked examples of the different ways that people will respond to Jesus. And it helps us to know 
to understand what we see around us, why it is that people respond in different ways. We have these sort of worked examples showing us something of it fleshed out. As well, it might help us to see our own hearts more clearly, hold a mirror up and ask us, well, how do I respond to Jesus? And of these different sort of options, which of them are true in me and what sort of different volumes are each of them dialed at? Helps us understand the world, helps us see ourselves more clearly, the different responses that there are to Jesus. And this week we have two different ones, uh, in Nazareth and in the palace, and both of them are negative responses to Jesus. Both of them like uh, that seed Jesus talked about on the, on the hard path. Doesn't get, go under, no fruit comes of it, sort of snatched away by a bird and gone, seemingly without a trace. Those kind of reactions. Now as the chapter goes on, it gets happier. Uh, different, more positive responses. But uh, for here for today, two negative responses to Jesus. And the question for us, well, does this make sense of the world? Does this reflect me and my heart? The first one then, in Nazareth, uh, the, the story Sarah uh, was talking about, showing us uh, earlier on. In Nazareth, uh, the people were offended because of Jesus' ordinariness. They were offended because he was ordinary, just one of us, just Jesus, they thought. Let me read it from verse 53, if you've got it in front of you. Uh, When Jesus finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. They're amazed. But as the question after question after question, they move step by step from amazement to offense. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his sisters with us? Where then did, these man get, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. That's the problem here. He's come home. And the question, where did he get these things, quickly becomes the question of, where does he get off? Who does he think he is? I went to school with him. He came and, him and his dad came and fixed up our extension those years ago. I changed his nappies. Who does he think he is talking like this, claiming this kind of authority? They took offense at him. Now, it's not the situation for us. We didn't grow up with Jesus like they did. Except maybe lots of us did, in a way. If, uh, if you grew up in this country then uh, very likely, you know, at some point you'd done the school nativity play, and you know, there Jesus is, the, the doll in the manger. And you get a little older, and when I was at secondary school, and um, if some here at secondary school, it might still be the same, where in the classroom where we did RE, religious education, there was this poster up of uh, sort of world religions, and the religions were on the top, and the questions down the side, and sort of answering it for each of them. You know, who is their, what's their key text? Their holy places, What are the festivals? You know, these kind of questions. And then, who's their key figure? And you've got Jesus there alongside Muhammad and Buddha and Moses and the rest. And so just one of them. It's just Jesus. Or recently, I was uh, listening to a TED talk, and uh, the speaker, to, to make one of their points, quoted some figures from history, some great thinkers, and quoted Sun Tzu's Art of War, and quoted Cicero's on duties, I don't know these, I have to write it down, and quoted Jesus in the Bible. And that's quite a line-up, some sort of influential figures to be alongside, but Jesus is sort of 
I need a, a third quote to land my point. I'll reach for Jesus. Just one, one more wise teacher. He's just Jesus. And then if you read a chapter like, well, Matthew 13, that we've been thinking the last few weeks, and suddenly Jesus is talking about judgment, and he puts himself at the heart of it. He says, actually, I'll be the one who sends out angels, and I'll be the one who separates wheat from weeds and fish from fish. I'll be the one who decides who is in my kingdom and who is out. And maybe we start to feel and understand some of what they felt. Who does he think he is? This is just Jesus. Who does he think he is? And in the final verse of this story, Matthew tells us where that ends. Verse 58, he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. There seems to be a principle going on with Jesus where what you see is what you get. If you look at him and you see just Jesus, well, that's what we get. They looked at him, they were offended, they saw just Jesus, we grew up with him, and they didn't get many miracles. They got just Jesus, nothing special. It's not that their lack of faith sort of uh, depowered him and his batteries ran flat because he needs to feed off it. But he just, he saw the dynamic that was going on. He does these miracles, he does this teaching, and it just leads to them taking offense and sort of missing the point. And so he's not going to add fuel to that fire. So he stops. He withdraws. And they're left with just Jesus. Nothing special. I wonder if part of the reason why at the church in the West, compared to in other places around the world, seems to be so lacking in power and growth and vitality is because in our culture and maybe in our churches, we see too much, it's just Jesus. And for us, individually, uh, how will we uh, respond to him? How will we look at him? That prayer that we uh, sung earlier or heard sung earlier, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Will we pray, Jesus, I, I want to see you more and more clearly rather than having less and less sight of you? In Nazareth, they were offended by Jesus' ordinariness. And then we move from that sort of fairly humble uh, town, as it was, to the palace. And in the palace, they were angered by a call to repent. Uh, to repent, to change. It's just a Bible word, to, to change, to turn direction, to repent. And they were angered by a call to change or to repent. So in chapter 14, we hear, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. He said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous power is at work in him. And we think, sorry, hold on. Uh, there's some stuff, there's some backstory, and there is. And so Matthew tells us what's going on. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So uh, the deal is Herod was married, and Philip, his brother, was married to Herodias, and Herod loses his wife, and uh, Herodias ditches her husband, and they come together. And John is saying, it's not right. It's not lawful. It needs to change. You need to repent. And uh, we'll see Herod's response in a minute. Uh, just uh, to clear up a misconception, though, or a, a maybe an idea some of us have, it's not that John is obsessed with sex. 
This is the idea sometimes the Bible is just sort of obsessed with sex and what people are doing. It's not the case, certainly, for John. Uh, earlier in the Gospels, if you read some of the early chapters, he is preaching in the desert and he's calling all kinds of people to repent and change of all kinds of things. And there'd be greed and injustice and hypocrisy and these things he sort of explicitly calls out. He's not obsessed with sex, but Herod is. He's you know, grabbed his brother's wife and is living with her. As the story goes on, we'll see that uh, he would call his teenage stepdaughter in to dance for the drunken lads at his birthday party. Here's a man who is obsessed with sex in ways that just, you want to wash your hands after you read these stories. And so John calls him out on it. He needs to change. And Herod is angry. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a dish the head of John the Baptist. And Herodias pulls the trigger that Herod never quite dared to. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. John comes and says, it's not lawful, it's not right, something needs to change, you need to repent. And Herod and Herodias are angry enough to kill to shut him up. Now, this is one of those stories in the Bible that is sort of, it's, it's caricatured. It's larger than life. Uh, not many people that you meet have this kind of power or live in this kind of debauchery. But like all caricatures, it sort of blows up big, something that's real, something true, so we can see it more clearly, more magnified. And there is something of Herod's response, I think, in every human heart. That when Jesus comes in his word, there are things in us, whether for you it would be sex or greed or injustice or hypocrisy or the other things, the list goes on. There are things that Jesus puts his finger on and says, mm, that is a change. And very often we respond with anger. It's not where I come to church. I want to hear something uplifting and encouraging. I don't want Jesus to meddle with my life. How dare he? Jesus, not this. You have no authority here. Leave. And we look for ways to silence him. As with Nazareth, Matthew gives us a little window into how this story ends for Herod. Verse 9, they're at this party. He's got his daughter into dance. There's kind of sex and drink and lust and all kind of stuff going on. And he ends up in this place where he makes this rash promise. I'll give you whatever you want. She asks for the head of John the Baptist, and he is distressed. This isn't what he wanted. The choices he's made have ended him up in this place. And there's guilt that comes with it. Right back at the beginning... He heard about Jesus. He said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. It's an odd thing to think. That's not kind of how Jewish theology worked, that if someone dies, they come back with more power. That's Star Wars. That's not the Bible. But Herod 
sees John the Baptist everywhere. He knows what he's done. He knows it's wrong. He's haunted by this guilty conscience. The call to change, the call to repent, the call, the Bible would sometimes say, to put things to death in us. It might feel like a call towards death, but the Bible would say it is a call towards life. It's a call away from distress and regret and guilt towards life. For Herod, for Herodias, they are angered by that call. Two responses. Uh, to Jesus, offense and anger. Now, as the chapter goes on, as I say, it sort of it turns happier. There are other, there are more positive responses to Jesus. But before we leave these verses uh, today, they do us, as well as the responses to Jesus, they also show us something about Jesus himself. They show us he is the authentic king. He's the authentic king in the sense that He really is king. Uh, He's the anti-Herod in uh, a bunch of ways, but uh, not least this. Herod called himself king. We get that verse 9, the king. That's what he wanted people to call him, but it wasn't actually what he was. More accurately in verse 1, he's Herod the Tetrarch, which is an old word that means a quarter. Uh, His dad's kingdom was divided up into four, and he just had one little quarter of it. He's not a king. He's a Tetrarch, a, a quarter king, but he wants everyone to call him the king. At his birthday party, I'll give you anything you want. There's not much he has the power, the authority to give, but he's playing the big man. I'm the king. Whereas Jesus really is. The, these chapters, the responses to Jesus, we see all sorts of different ones, but the, the high point comes when Peter says, in the words of the, the kids' song from earlier, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who Jesus is. He really is the king. He's not pretending like a Herod. But then also Jesus is the authentic king in that he has integrity, authenticity. We long for leaders of authenticity, where we know where we are with them. We know that they mean what they say, and they are how they seem who aren't just constantly following, what what does everyone want me to say? What can I do to be liked? And I'll say that, I'll do that, but have an authenticity. And that's certainly not what Herod was like. At first, he wanted to kill John, but the crowd didn't like it. His spin doctors told him it was a bad idea, bad PR, so he didn't do it. Later on, he doesn't want to kill John anymore, but he's sort of surrounded by the drunk lads, and they're egging him on, and so he does it. Driven by the polls, driven by peer pressure. That's Herod. Whereas Jesus, not at all. Back in Nazareth, they're taking offense at him. Who is this? And he doesn't change. He doesn't sort of come cringing to them. What can I do to make you like me? He doesn't say, I'll do more, bigger, better, more impressive miracles. I'll I'll convince you. No, he, he lays out his stall. Here's who I am. And leaves them to respond. He doesn't force himself. Here's who I am. What are you going to make of it? He leaves the response. He's he's an authentic king. There's a a self-confidence. He knows who he is. And that's what he presents, and then he leaves it to us. So these stories, this Nazareth and uh, palace story, 
They ask us the question, how will we respond to Jesus? Offense is an option. So is anger. But so too is to kneel with Peter and say, no, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How will we respond to Jesus? Let me lead this in a prayer. Our Father, parts of the Bible are more comfortable than others, and certainly there'd be parts more comfortable than this. But we thank you that you speak for our good, and you speak to show us our world and ourselves more clearly. And we pray you would show us ourselves, but above all, you would show us Jesus, open the eyes of our heart to see him, and help us respond to him in ways that are wise, in ways that lead to life. Uh, Help us, as we'll uh, hear in our next song, to uh, behold our King and uh, to worship Him rightly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.